0: Hello and welcome to episode 31 of the Universe Podcast. I'm your host, Leo, here with my co-host, Charlotte. Hello. And our guest, Kevin Potter. Hello. Kevin, it's great to have you on the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I'd be happy to. Thanks for having me.
1: Uh, My name is Kevin Potter. I am a pre-doc assistant lecturer at the University of Vienna in the Department of English and American Studies. Uh, My research, uh, which we can get into later, will mostly focuses on literary studies, broadly speaking, uh, migration, critical theory, uh, theories of poetics, um, and I often teach from that perspective. I've also taught courses on dystopian fiction. Um, I'm originally from the U.S. I spent my formative years living in Tampa, Florida, Um, and after that I moved to Holland where I lived for about... Four years give or take uh and i've been here in vienna since 2017
0: awesome i'll refrain from any florida man jokes
1: (laughs) i'm sure you've heard i've
0: heard plenty plenty i've heard
1: plenty (laughs) okay but we wear them like a badge of honor so it's totally fine
0: (laughs) all right uh Let's start with some self-indulgence. Had you heard about the podcast before?
1: I had. I had Ooh, heard about nice. the podcast before. <laughs> okay. uh, I see your flyers around the department. Oh, yes. Uh, nice. And, yes. and I, it, it has piqued my curiosity more than once. Uh, and then having uh, having followed they on Twitter, I now have more... Uh, exposure to what uh, the episodes that you have every once in a while. And some students of mine have told me about their experiences on the podcast. Mm -hmm.
0: So now here I am. So I suppose your academic career brought you to Vienna and before that to the Netherlands. Mm -hmm. Uh, How did you end up in academia? How does one strand or does one strand there?
1: (laughs) Yeah, it's well, everyone has... um, a different story. I would say for me, I mean, it, it sounds cliche, but in a lot of ways, as a bachelor's student, um, I felt inspired by my professors. I felt like it was a job I wanted to do. Uh, it looked like fun. It looked <laughs> like something I could get. I could get the hang of. Um, it also seemed to me a little, a little bit into my bachelor's degree that I also fell in love with research, which I never thought I would do. I liked reading. I loved reading. I loved talking about reading. Uh, That's why I studied it. Mm -hmm. But it didn't occur to me that you could actually produce something from reading. I always thought going into doing a bachelor's degree in English was my way of also entering into being eventually an English teacher or going to teach at a high school or maybe bouncing around and doing other things. Mm -hmm. Who knew? But um, I, I didn't really think about university in vocational terms, which is a very privileged thing to say. Mm. Um, But eventually I took sort of the right classes and read all the right things um, and fell in love with research. So I liked writing papers. I was one of those weird people who looked forward to writing a paper every (laughs) semester because I thought this is my chance to come up with an idea that I like. I was always going up to teachers and saying, what do you think of this? What do you think of this guy? And they would would catch them by surprise and they'd Mm. say, what I've never had this conversation with a student before. <laughs> and then eventually getting to the end of my bachelor's degree, I, and, and this is sort of, I, what I know now and what I didn't know then is that this feeling never goes away, which is I got to the end of my bachelor's degree and I thought, I don't think I know enough mm-hmm. or I don't think I've done enough or I don't think I've produced enough. Um, so I want to keep doing that. So I wanted to go on to do, I, I knew from Then forward, I wanted to go on to do a PhD. Uh, First had to stop, stop and do a master's degree. Um, I found out that there are these um, programs that are offered in the Netherlands, what are called research master's programs, which are meant to be two-year terminal master's degrees that are meant to prepare you to do a PhD. Mm -hmm. Um, That's, you know, and that was also going to be my way of starting graduate study, postgraduate study to decide whether I felt like I was cut out for this. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I go on to do my master's there. And then I got really involved in critical theory. I got really involved in, you know, sort of looking at literature through various different theoretical and social lenses. And I, every, every time I've set foot in a university, I felt like I was at home there. Mm-hmm. So I've had other jobs. Uh, I've worked. I've worked food service. I've worked sales. I've worked in digital marketing. I've worked for lousy startup companies. <laughs> um, and the only time I've ever felt at home was when I'm in a university
0: library or reading a book at a university. So that's what happens.
2: Mm. <laughs> Amazing. I,
0: I find it very relatable. Did you ever want to become a, a researcher? Sort of.
2: Um, no, I. <laughs> I always thought, how cool would it be to be a professor for adults, but the way to get there was always mm. like way too daunting. Mm-hmm. Okay. So no. Um, how did you end up in Europe? Yeah, for your studies? That's a
1: good. That's a good question because I never have a really strong story to tell here. It's not a very compelling one, um, because the short answer is that, as 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 both of you are probably very well aware, um, going to do a master's degree in the United States is a very expensive thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, it turns out to be much cheaper to come to Europe to do a master's degree. Okay, there's more. There's more to the story than that, which is also that, um, as I said before, this research masters thing that they offered in Holland when I was there is quite is quite unique, and I was never able to really find something very much like that anywhere else. It was very, um, it was a kind of program where you were encouraged to design a lot of your own curriculum. It was a it was mm-hmm. a program where, for example, you could set up a tutorial with a teacher and say, "I would like to do a tutorial on this author. Would you advise me on it?" And you spend a semester with. Me one-on-one with a professor to That's do whatever you want. That's pretty amazing. It was, it was an incredible, incredible experience. The other one was also that in 2013, I was feeling very uh, disillusioned about my country and about where I was living. I had no idea what was coming after that, but <laughs> gee, in 2013, things seemed so hard at the time, <laughs> and I thought, well, I'm eager to kind of get out, and, and I'm young, I have nothing nothing to lose and I've never lived outside of my home country before I I've bounced around to different places within the US but I've never lived outside of the US before so I thought what what do I have to lose mm. so uh, I moved to the Netherlands in 2013 and then I did a two-year master's then my my girlfriend at the time my wife now joined me in the Netherlands in 2015. Um, and we got married in 2017. And so both of us decided Mm -hmm. we, we were, we were in, uh, we were, had no, uh, real compulsion to return to the U S uh, in 2017. I can't imagine why. (laughs) Um, and, uh, and so we both decided we wanted to stick around. And once I got this job offer in Vienna, that's where exactly where both of us wanted to be. She's a pastry
0: chef. So this is the city for her. Oh, okay.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cool yeah yeah
0: <laughs> does she make a lot of pastries at home
1: uh, no it she you know it it turns out that when you spend your forty hours a week doing something, it's Makes the last sense. thing you want to yes. do when you walk into your home mm-hmm. uh, and I understand that very very well mm-hmm. you know uh, so it, it turns out that when you spend when you spend uh, five days a week making wedding cakes for people, she works for demo uh wow. it, yeah Ooh, you know yeah, fancy. And That's exactly so great. you do that five days a week. If she comes home, the last thing I'm going to do is ask her, "Hey, would you like to make would you like to make pastries for me?" <laughs> yeah. So uh, I know better than to ask. <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: Very understandable. Mm. Uh, and we want to ask whether you uh, also write yourself apart from your academic writing.
1: I don't. Um, I did at one point. Um, I found myself uh, when I was in high school uh, writing, trying to write poetry. Uh, I found myself being very impatient with my own abilities. <laughs> you know this isn't really producing what I want. Um, I did I did I had other creative ventures at the time. I was playing a lot of music, so I felt that I was channel I was trying to channel those interests into words. Um, but I always felt myself imitating authors that I liked. Um, I, I, you look at authors who do things, particularly poets, who make it look so easy. And then you sit down to do it yourself and you realize it's not as easy as it looks. (laughs) Um, so I figure I'm, I'm, I'm much more comfortable. I feel much more at home reading them and attempting to analyze them from a much more, from a much more distant standpoint. And I I had lots of friends who were creative writers and I I have the biggest admiration for what they do because I just could not, I could not bring myself to do it myself.
2: Mm. So. And, um, can you still read something for pleasure without analyzing it all the time?
1: That's a good question. I get that question a lot. I think that for me it's the geekiest thing to say, but I I actually get a pleasure out of analyzing something. See. I mean, the weird thing is is I mean, yes, in some ways I am able to turn my brain off and if I'm reading just, you know, something on the beach, just like trash junk food, you know, like a biography of a famous golfer or something. I can definitely turn my brain off because I don't need to think about it. But I actually, I can't, sometimes I, even if I, there's a novel I'm dying to read, I can't help but have a pen in my hand and marking it up. And it looks like I'm doing homework, but to me that there's a weird pleasure in doing it. It's, there's something twisted about me that makes me cool. have a weird pleasure but in doing then, that
2: but then this really sounds like you have found your true calling that's really cool
1: in a way yeah in a, and in a way I as I said before I've never felt more at home being yeah. at a university I mean you know on a good day that's how it feels on a bad day when things aren't going of so course. well and you can't concentrate mm-hmm. and you can't focus oh. Oh, am I am I really cut out for this mm-hmm. do I really belong here but but you know there's when I'm when I hear about a new book coming out it's to me, it's I can't wait to look at this and, and dissect it, and go deep and give a deep dive into this thing. So uh, it's to me, there's no distinction between between reading for pleasure and reading and analyzing.
0: So. I understand that, but then my next question would be: Do you do you still find time to read for pleasure
1: uh, over the summer? Okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> over the summers, I have. I always, <laughs> I you know, before every year, I I I, I build like a, a summer reading list, and I keep. You know, books at home that I want to mm-hmm. read at home or that, I, that, for example, if I'm going on vacation, I won't bring books that I'm using in my dissertation because otherwise I'll want to stop whatever I'm doing, get on my computer and type something up. Mm-hmm. Whereas I will read something that I've just been dying to read um, because I never got around to it. And yeah, I'll analyze it and I'll look at it and I'll make notes and I'll think about what it reminds me of. But I won't, you know, be compelled to then go and write a paper about it or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I do that. That's what I do on vacations. That's what I do over the summer. I I, I I conceive of a long list of things and I keep those books at home away from my office mm-hmm. that, I, that, you know, I keep them out of sight out of mind
0: okay good out of sight because i have got them on my nightstand there's always a yearning look
1: yeah i don't have time for you right now i'm so sorry they're crying out for you (laughs) i'm languishing there yeah no i have that as well i i I have i have a stack on my on my nightstand and then i have a bookshelf at home and i go i can't look at you right now it's just too (laughs) painful so
2: you said you do poetics and we were wondering what that means
0: I was very unfamiliar. I mean, I'm sure I've had the term before, mm-hmm. but I've never, I've never come across it at uni. Which maybe I've just forgotten it because I feel like I should have in my <laughs> eight <laughs> semesters of English. Yeah. Well, you know,
1: this is it's interesting because, um, it, um, you saying that is actually it confirms something that I've always felt, which is that poetics is a term that there is a widespread amnesia about what that term actually means in literary studies because actually it's a foundational concept in the study of literature, going all the way back to Aristotle, right? For Aristotle, poetics was the kinds of governing law that went into, or the governing principles, compositional compositional principles that go into developing a, a piece of literature or a piece of art or a piece of poetry. Um, And it has since been – I mean, that started how we used to look at literature generally. We used to look at, you know, what was – what is the relationship to words and what are words supposed to do? What is a poem supposed to look like? You know, in – in the time from Aristotle onward, there used to be these sort of institutions that said this is what a poem is supposed to have. It's supposed to reflect, you know, human virtue. It's supposed to show heroism. It's supposed to show all of these things. So poetics is a term that we actually are doing and using a lot without actually explicitly invoking it. In other words, we'll sort of if you're looking at, you know, the relationship between form or the relationship between form and content, you are in effect looking at poetics, but we don't typically call it that anymore. Um, the other issue is that even if you go to people in our department and you say, what is, how would you define poetics? You'd get 10 different answers from 10 different people. Mm-hmm. It's sort of like, you know, what is critique? Mm-hmm. What is, you know, what is interpretation? What is literature? Right. Poetics is another one of those terms that we've sort of we all heard it, we've maybe come across it once or twice, and you sort of hear it and you say, okay, it probably has something to do with poetry and poetic form. The issue is now, after a long kind of 20th century of literary theory, poetics to me has all kinds of meanings. But what it tends to boil down to is how is meaning constructed and arranged in a certain way? And how do different systems of meaning coincide within a particular text? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Now, that could mean how is it formed? How is it structured? That's one way of looking at it. You can look at style. That's one way of looking at poetics. Or you can look at what its effect is on sort of showing different um, ways of representing society or representing the world, the external world. In my view, poetics has to include all of this. I think that you cannot talk about poetics without both talking about form and also talking about broader systems of ideology and meaning and discourse and all of these things have to mash together. But it tends to treat the text itself as its own object of study, one. So you look at a text and you say, what is the poetics? How is it constructed? How does it construct a unifying or or a unifying system of meaning, a coherent system of meaning, or how does it resist a coherent system of meaning? So it's something that has, has played a big role in institutionalizing the study of literature, but people tend to think it's a little old-fashioned. Mm-hmm. So part of what I'm doing with poetics and comparing it with migration, which we can get into, is that I think that there's a way in which the form of literature for mig- migrant literature bears on a h- huge consequences for this discussion of poetics.
0: So it's a big, long answer, Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but very elaborate. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I've only recently come across this dealing of um, form and content as two very separate things. Maybe mm-hmm. that's because I also study history. So what right. I've usually, what I've done when I've done, Literature studies is do like a socio-cultural approach, socio-historical approach, where I've been very uh, content-focused, probably, Mm -hmm. Uh, and then I, I came across this that that there is actually more that I should maybe uh, consider, namely the form of what I'm looking at, uh, and I felt a bit inadequate and had no idea how to do that. But reading your your work, what you sent us, I see uh, how you do that. I think we can get into uh, that later. But first, I would like to ask you how you even ended up doing something like Poetics. Has that ever, ever always been your field of interest?
1: Um, it actually hasn't. I mean, in, in, in various different ways, I also approached literature in the way that you described before, in, in the sense of, I was always interested in the sort of sociocultural relationships detailed within a novel, for example, or how you can approach something with a kind of interpretation of, you know, how does this reflect or detail the conditions of capitalism? Or how does this detail the social historical discourse of the particular time? Um, and how do, how do different power relations shape the story? but um it got to my attention recently that one of the ways that you can do this through literature i mean i should I should back up and say that 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 the discussion the distinctions between form and content you know ha- it has a long history in the twentieth century of literary theory because we had for a long time um you know after the you know you know the formation of literary studies crystallizing as an actual institutional study you had people you had what were called the formalists or the russian formalists because it started in russia and then the us had what was called the new criticism and then that turned into structuralism so those fields together culminated in when it came to looking at literature trying to see how the text was arranged in a particular unifying way. And if you're a careful and close reader like a lot of these people were, they were they were wanting to know why certain choices of style were were used over another. Right? So those were always there and in some ways they the you know one of the clichés you often hear is actually for them form is the content right form is content that means that how this how this story is conveyed can't be talked about without how this how the words are arranged on a page and how the specific deliberate choice of style is is arranged so for them the distinction between form and content is arbitrary and completely negligible but once you get into thinking about more in the sense of I'm interested in how this text reflects something about its context or different context or how it intervenes in our understanding of society. You can get away from talking about form so much because you can actually talk about the kind of imagined world created in this text and what is the consequences of this imagined world created within the text. But to me, I couldn't help think about, you know, coming back to poetics I wanted to both you know try to produce something that I thought was an important way of looking at migration that does that isn't answered in other domains of society or political society. So we can talk all day about economic and political forces, we can talk all day about subjectivity and critical theory, but I felt something was missing. And what is it that literature supplies? that these other you know you know why would i look at a literary text and not say become an anthropologist and go and interview immigrants why would i th- want to theorize movement and migration from the standpoint of literature and the answer that occurred to me was that something literature offers that other texts don't isn't just the imaginative world we all agree that it does this that literature offers some kind of imagination that you know, you can't find if you're just reading, you know, uh, the newspaper or whatever. Mm-hmm. But how does it do that? It does that by way of poetics to me. It does this by way of arranging and changing our conception of meaning and does so through very experimental uses of language and a very exper- experimental, experimental uses of meaning and experimental ways of looking at things. And because I I come from a particular tradition in critical theory, I also have a different way of looking at language. So I think about language not just as something that signifies, you know, one word signifies another meaning or signifies another concept, but rather how it also hits us and gives us a new sensation, gives us a way of feeling. This is what is often called the affective turn of critical theory. Mm -hmm. So that's why I combine that with poetics and I say that all of these things have a relationship that's unique to literature that other domains don't have.
2: I'm wondering now what is the role of the author in poetics? Because most of the things you said, like meaning and structure and style mm-hmm. of a literary piece, were most of the time, or sometimes maybe deliberate choices that a sure. person who the person who wrote it made. Um, in my case, I don't really make these choices deliberately, but they mm-hmm. just happen. Yeah. So I was wondering if that, like, the writers are ever like subject in poetics.
1: Um, in my mind, no. I mean the way that I the way that I you know the, the way that this is ch- generally characterized is that you would look at a text not by what the intention is nor by what it's you know what it signifies, but what it does
2: mm-hmm. right
1: So how you know despite I mean you know it's it's it tends to be it can it can give you all kinds of interesting things to to figure out what the author was going for, but from all these kinds of things but that doesn't tend to be, central in how the analysis mm-hmm. works. The analysis tends to be, what is the effect? What does it do? How? What is it performing? And how is it sort of changing? It actually puts a lot of, it actually sort of repositions or re-centralizes uh, the reader in a way. But it also has a kind of more impact on our sensation and our conception of things.
2: But um, wouldn't it add to the discussion if you thought about was this deliberately done? Like, did the person who wrote this set out to do that thing that the text does. I don't know. I'm just, I'm new to this. So, so maybe I'm, I'm talking. No, that's okay. Things, but yeah. Um, I, no, I think that's a, I think it's
1: a perfectly natural question and I think it's also perfectly natural to wonder and to, into to, attempt to call out from the author to say what, you know, am I wrong in, in thinking that this was an effect? But of course we don't, as readers, we have to assume that one, we don't have that luxury That we're never going to, I mean, as much as I would love to meet many of the authors that I write about, Mm -hmm. I know I'm never going to get that chance. The best I have is, and and, and to me, the more compelling story tends to be what it does because they, it can do something different every single time it's read and it can do something different for every reader. It can do something different in every context I mean reading migration in the year 2019
2: mm-hmm.
1: is to me quite different than it was at other stages in my life when when being first of all being an immigrant it mm-hmm. means something different to me second living in sort of tumultuous political times it means something different mm-hmm. to me and what why is that why do you, why does it you know reshape or reconstitute the way that we experience this whole question around migration those questions tend to have tend to be more productive for scholarship. Not the, not to say that it's more interesting or that it, it's not more uh, it's not better, but you tend to be able to write about a lot more when mm-hmm. you're thinking more about how it does something different, mm-hmm. independently of what the author thinks. I mean that you know, as 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 many people might know, I mean there's also a tradition that goes back to the post-structuralists this, this idea of the death of the author. Yeah. Uh, the idea that the that we're supposed to mm. we are supposed to kill the author because mm-hmm. their life is not so to say a master text behind the text that enables you to decode its meaning. Yeah. But rather the way that we're looking at it is that there is no master text. There are only multiple texts and multiple iterations of that text. Mm-hmm. So that world tends to be a lot more productive, I think.
2: I, I agree. I, yeah. That's also my opinion. I was just interested in like the role of the author. Sure. Um, also, yeah, I, I love it when texts just stand for themselves. Agreed. Because like you said, there are texts that were written like hundreds of years ago and they still have merit today. And the author probably did not think that that would ever happen or didn't know that their story would still be relevant.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And you already said that uh, you... Talk about migration, and that uh, your own story of migrating to Europe, so to speak, uh, has had some some influence to, uh, on that. Um, and so, this is your your particular field, migrational yeah. fiction. Mm-hmm. Um, could you give like a brief explanation of what that is? I mean, it kind of says so on the tin, but yeah. is there?
1: Yeah, it does sort of speak for itself. I mean, there there are different. There actually are differences between different ways of looking at literature and migration. There's, you know, you, you, you could say that in my case, I'm looking at, I look at literature because it centers on the migrant as a figure, as, as, a, as, a, as a historical and social figure. So typically migrant literature will detail the story of someone moving to a new place, but it, it tells the story of what that process feels like. Or what that what that process entails? Going to a new place, learning, trying to learn a new language, trying, you know, feeling the the constant drumbeat of assimilationism, saying, "Look, if you have to live here, you got to learn to you got to learn to speak our language, you got to learn to follow our customs, and so on." And this has a very very long history um, of people, you know, just describing the trauma of losing home, losing their home working in a language other than their own. So you'll often have authors writing in more than one language. And you'll often find that they're talking about, you know, um, what happened when they first, when they imagined going to this place when, and what it was actually like when they went there, for example. And these are sort of generalizations. There's several, di- there's lots of diversity across different types of migrant literature. Um, there's also traditions of what people might call diasporic literature. Which is basically when you have a sort of people, a group of people, or a collective who have moved across, and they share a kind of ethnic shared background. So they share a kind of trajectory in a way. We all came from the same place and to the same place. So we formed our own ethnic community here. So you'll find a lot of, you know, uh, Asian American diasporic literature. You'll find a lot of uh, Indian British. Diasporic literature. You'll have all those kinds of traditions of people who followed a similar trajectory. And then you'll have migration literature, in distinct from migrant literature, which is literature that simply tells the story of multiple migrations, but tries to tell it from a much broader standpoint. But for me, the more interesting thing is to actually focus on the central figure of the migrant themselves and what they say and what they feel and how they experience it.
0: Mm-hmm. That sounds very interesting. <laughs> yeah, it does. Um,
2: also, if we're talking about all these things, I was wondering where post-colonial literature and migrant fiction, fiction kind of meet, or if they have any um, overlaps.
1: Yeah, that's actually. I mean, that's there's not a there's not a straightforward answer to mm-hmm. that. I mean, post-colonial literature and migrant literature are really cousins in a way. Okay. They concern themselves with the same with a lot of the same things: the loss of home, mm-hmm. the loss, you know, often losses of identity. Often having to navigate and negotiate institutions of power, um, and being deprived of power, mm-hmm. being deprived of uh, you know being disenfranchised, um, and there's a there's a very strong um, political and material connection between you know colonization and migration. I mean, you know um, the all of these things, all of these uh, social historical processes. Require some way of depriving someone of their land, in one way or another. Mm-hmm. Now, not in, this is to say that these are different forms of migration. Migration is a big, big category that has various different forms. It goes in many different directions and has different influences. Post-colonial literature, to me, details a lot of these kinds of things in a way that looks at you know the what happens when you know what was once a home that was, you know, dominated by a particular uh, regime of power. And then what happens when that regime of power decides, well, now you have your independence, but now your your view of history, your view of your identity needs to be redefined in a way. Or it needs to be understood in a sense that um, you have to work against the limitations that you have as someone who no longer has power, or in in the case of you know decolonial literature or anti colonial literature, is someone who's trying to gain power and trying to achieve power, so you try to achieve a certain kind of representation because colonization as a as a process as a force has deprived you of representation. So post colonial literature actually invents the possibility to be represented. Um, so these are these are these are very much related in that. As, as a migrant, you also think about, you know, you are, you know, as a migrant, distinct from, you know, all the other categories, you are actually someone who's in between nations. Mm-hmm. So you, no political system has room for you. No political mm-hmm. system represents you. You can't vote. You can't work in many cases. Uh, you have no power. You you have to, you, you're basically being controlled by forces outside of your control. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, in fact... Uh, forgive me before we recorded you talked about Gramsci mm-hmm. Gramsci has the idea of the subaltern which has then been taken up by other post-colonial scholars to refer both to the, the colonized subject and also subjects like the migrant. People like Gayatri Spivak talk a lot about this and she's she's very much at the center of both post-colonial studies and studies of migration mm-hmm. so and if you are, if you are a card-carrying Marxist you could think far back in uh, the ideas of primitive accumulation, So primitive accumulation for Marx was this idea that in order for a society or a capitalist society to emerge, you had to dispossess people Mm -hmm. and you had to deprive them of their land in order to then assume control over their resources. And what does that do? That forces them out. That forces them out of their land. That forces them to become migrants, uh, to turn into migratory figures. So all of these are, are, and that's, colonization does the same thing. You deprive people of property and then they become migrants. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah. Thank you
0: for clearing that up. <laughs> yeah. Uh I talked to some, some of your students uh, sure. from your course and they told me about something very interesting that you also deal uh with the the influence of different languages mm-hmm. and I think that would also kind of uh connect back or tie back in with the the form and content issue because mm-hmm. the the language you say something in does do a lot with the content yeah. it is done in. Would you like to talk a bit about that?
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to. So one of the things that you often find in talking about poetics with migration, um, and I should say this is this is one way of looking at poetics in a sense that that's often more more conventional, which is to say that you look at how a, you know certain ways of using language, have a different effect and what and what is unique to being a migrant or what is unique about migration that requires a new way of using language that is different from other texts or other ways of reading or other ways of writing. And so what, as I said before, one of the things that happens as a migrant is you find yourself exposed to different languages and different linguistic situations that you're in. Um, that means when you're you know someone who is just learning English speaks English in a very uh, in a very different way than you would hear sort of standard received English in in England or in America, for example. Um, and a lot of authors, uh, particularly the ones that I'm teaching, have a, a, an attentiveness to language because of their exposure to these different contexts. So they find themselves influenced by both the... You know, the di- you, know, you know, the differences in their native language versus the differences in the language that they are in the in the one that they're arriving at the country where they're arriving. And then on the other hand, you also have this dimension where authors feel that they would they would much rather make a statement with the language that is unique to their own circumstances rather than complying with a national language or a national literature. I should say one of the things that this does, you know, as a as a in a broader context, and this will answer your question because a lot of times when we look at literature, it's a, it's a rather old-fashioned attitude. But you, there used to be a time that we would look at literature and we would say, you know, literature speaks on the behalf of a nation or it it, it, it somehow contributes to a national soul, um, and that's a very old-fashioned way of looking at it. Yet we still have that imprint on the in the universities in a lot of ways. And so what a lot of migrant authors will do is they'll say, well, how do I how can I use language in a way that speaks to the uniqueness of migration and being a migrant? And often that means using language in ways that are not standard, using language in ways that emphasize different musical influences, for example, or different rhythmic influences. So, for example, we looked at an author named Louise Bennett. Uh, She's a she's a Jamaican poet who uses what we might call Jamaican Creole English, sort of non-standard English re- English that is often spoken by the community of people within Jamaica, particularly those who were, you know, there's also a sort of class dimension. So people who were not sort of university educated, so didn't receive English from the English colonizers, but rather spoke their own kind of form of English that enabled them to sort of, perform their own unique ethnic identity. And Louise Bennett in her poetry actually wanted to celebrate the kind of unique musicality and the unique uh, uh, dimensions of this kind of language that that standard received English just doesn't, can't live up to. It just doesn't have what she wants. So, and, and a lot of the themes in her poetry go in, go into, okay, well, I've moved to this, You know, I think about, you know, she's someone who lived in the UK for a very long time, uh, went back and forth between the UK and Jamaica and found herself constantly under this pressure to speak a certain kind of English so that she would be accepted by society or be accepted by the British society. And she thought, there's no reason why I need to accept those terms. I don't need to accept English as it's set by the colonizers. I think this language has its own beauty, it has its own internal beauty, it has its own internal complexity, and that complexity is indicative of the uniqueness of her situation as someone who lived between two different countries.
0: Mm -hmm. So this issue of language can be quite productive because, on the one hand, I mean, it can be productive on the one hand because you can try to experience new or express new experiences the migrant experience in the language, but I suppose it can also be quite uh, restricting because what if you come from a culture and then you go to another culture and the language that they speak there has no concept, no words for what you are experiencing.
1: That's right. Yeah, that's right. And in fact, a lot of authors th- think about this a lot. I mean, I mean, there are, um, particularly authors like, um, Gloria and Saldua It was a book called borderlands where, uh, uh, I mean, a, a third of the book is written in Spanish and most, most English readers wouldn't understand it, but it's simply the fact that English doesn't doesn't offer her what she needs. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't live up to the task, doesn't have the heavy lifting to convey what she wants to convey. Uh, you'll you'll find this with authors like like Juno Diaz, the now disgraced Juno Diaz, who who has uh, similarly will will incorporate will incorporate um, Spanish into into his books and say. It's, there's just no other way to do it other than to include this language. So it's to find that for a lot of authors they, they reflect on the fact that they, they had to deal with this loss that says, well, now I have to speak this language that doesn't that doesn't satisfy me or they'll code switch between the two and they'll say I am someone who live, lives and works within two languages and one of them works for one purpose and one of them works for another.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And what you translate and what you, what you don't translate, what you express in this language or another also speaks to power relations, right? I mean, I, I took a class once where they talked about translational studies, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, how sometimes the author do, authors do decide to to have sayings in there or lyrics or something like that in, the, in another language, like some obscure African language. That sure. You, only a couple of thousand people in Africa know, but it's sure. their language, and uh, why should they always have to give an explanation when everything we write is taken to be the standards?
1: Yeah, that, I mean that there's a there's a very there's a very good good point because actually this is one of the this is one of the things you know as as happy as I am to be in an English department and as happy as I am that they have employed me, it's one of the problems of an English department because we want to be. We don't want to restrict ourselves mm. to the great, uh, the texts of the great British Empire or of the imperial American, uh, you know, hegemony. But that's what we do if we only restrict ourselves to the English language or the English language and Brit and in, in England and and her former colonies, right? Um, and in fact, there's an essay called, I believe it's called "On the Abolition of English Departments" uh, <laughs> by by the. Um, by the Kenyan novelist Gugi Watongo, uh, and he talks about, you know, this is, you know, there's no reason why we have to comply with what the colonizer wants. And if mm-hmm. we do, if we keep doing that, that's what the English department is set up to do, that they we're simply mm-hmm. trying to comply with what they want. Um, and he was someone who, who his early novels, he wrote them in, in English. And then at the end, he just decided, I'm never, I'm not doing this anymore. And he doesn't, and no more. I mean, now he he teaches at an American university, so of course he teaches in English and he speaks English and he does it better than better than I or anyone else. But he, uh, in his novels, he says, "I have no reason to write in English anymore. I have no reason to produce these because I'm not I'm not in the I'm not in the business of simply satisfying the colonizer. I'm not simply in the interest of satisfying market forces anymore. So I'm not going to write in English anymore." Mm-hmm. And that's a, that's a big, big debate. And it's a big question. It's a big concern to have, because of course, English is everywhere. I mean, I'm in Austria, and I'm speaking English right now that speaks to the hegemony of the English language. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's in and it speaks to the to the ever presence of the English language, the fact that I can have a job speaking English in, in, uh, in a German speaking country, for example. But the fact is that, that also presents us with a series of limitations, especially if you're wanting to undo, you know, the the national boundaries. You think that national boundaries are arbitrary and forced and enforced by power. Then we have to be willing to accept the fact that working within one language only reinforces those boundaries.
2: Mm-hmm. I find the question interesting if, migration is also considered if somebody like migrates from a county or a state of a country into another one like for instance would we consider leo having migrated from upper austria to vienna Mm -hmm. because the way we talk here is different than people the way people talk in in yeah in uh, upper austria because i mean i don't speak dialect you do i think Mm. right so i was interested in knowing is dialect also considered um, a different language? Because, I mean, also even the standard of German we speak here in Austria is different to the standard they speak in Germany. Sure. And like what you said, Leo, about the, the power relationship in translations had me think of the fact that every book that is translated into German from any other language gets translated into German-German. Mm. And that is also kind of like a power relation, because the way we speak here is not as powerful, obviously, as Germany, because Germany is so much bigger. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a good question, because I, I haven't I actually hadn't quite given that one a lot of thought. Um, my, I mean, my own my own my own feeling about this, just if I, you know, to, to compare it to my experiences with English language, mm-hmm. for example, Um you know, there is, you know, how, how, how this idea of dialect compares to migration. I mean, it sh- surely it speaks to a history of migration, mm-hmm. um, a history of the movement of people across different national boundaries. What, what, we, what we have today, as you say, moving from one part of Austria to another part of Austria, you know, if, if I'm thinking, you know, in terms of official legal terms, you know, legal, legally speaking, and in terms of international law and the UN's definition of what migration is, mm-hmm. that doesn't constitute, that doesn't quite constitute migration in the sense because you have to actually be crossing a national mm-hmm. boundary. You have mm-hmm. to be outside of a boundary, even if you're outside of that boundary temporarily. So, one of the things that I sort of, I, I, I was quite proud, I surprised my students by saying, look, actually, when you're a traveler or you're a tourist, you are temporarily, by definition, A migrant because you Mm -hmm. are between boundaries, you can't work, you can't you can't work there even if you're only there temporarily. Temporarily, you are a migrant. So anyway, that that is to say that I don't know that it really constitutes migration in that sense, Mm -hmm. but it does speak to a history of migration. Mm -hmm. And so with you know, in in my case for English being speaking American English, speaking American English, and you know when I go back home, I I throw on my Southern drawl and I speak like Southern English when I'm back in Florida. that's you know there's a there's a history for why that happens um and it's a history of people having moved from one empire and then went to settle in another and of course the other thing is is of course the transmission of languages around the world has also shaped global englishes in different places Mm -hmm. so um, the fact is that you know american english is very recognizable around the world because all of us watch hollywood films and all Mm -hmm. of us watch american television so so american english is very easy to easy to detect and same with british english and Mm -hmm. to me it's it's but also to me i mean i can be within the u.s and if i'm talking to another american i can immediately oh that's a boston accent Mm -hmm. oh that's a california accent right Mm -hmm. there um with outside of the u.s i think those distinctions are Are fairly arbitrary. I Mm. think they probably don't match up, but I could, you know, those are things you could pick up immediately. Mm. But going far enough back, that's just simply because people formed different sort of group enclaves that spoke to where they settled and where they moved.
2: Mm.
0: I think what's also important to keep in mind is that the power relations are not by far, not as profound. I may be coming from the smallest village. Uh, I don't experience this profound kind of alienation for speaking my kind of German here <laughs> in Vienna. The the profoundest experience of alienation I have is when I get corrected at the bakery <laughs> for using the the wrong term for my for my croissant <laughs> that I was want to buy. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I think that could speak to. I mean, maybe it could speak to a kind of. Um, Uh, there is a a kind of class relation though, right? I mean, when you, when, I mean, yeah, I mean, where, you know, where I come from, again, you know, people will speak with a kind of, you know, Southern English is seen as very improper. And when people hear someone speak, speak from the South, they think, oh, they're very uneducated. They're very, uh, you know, they must not, they must not have gone to school or anything like this. And, and it's simply because you just absorb, I mean, really, the the actual fact is that you just simply absorb the language around you, despite, despite how, Mm -hmm. in fact, you know, where you went to school or whatever. It's just how we work. Um, and that's, you know, it's interesting because that, that's something we talked about in my class when we talked about Louise Bennett, because one of the things is, is she's deliberately using English in very strange ways. She's spelling things differently and using grammar in ways you wouldn't expect. And I, you know, I turned to my students, I said, you know, does any, but does anyone doubt that Louise Bennett knows, of course she knows standard British English. And that's precisely the point. It's precisely the point that we have a conception of someone who speaks a dialect and we immediately in the back of our head think, well, they must not there's – there's an idea of what's, quote, proper. Mm-hmm. There's an idea of what is what we deem to be educated because they need to know proper grammar to, in order to, be, to express the fact that they've been educated in a particular way, in a way that we deem acceptable, that we deem normal. Um, and that's precisely the point. I mean, if I if I showed up in my first day of my course teaching and I, again, was, hey, howdy, y'all. How y'all doing? My name is Kevin. It's good to talk to y'all. I think half of the students would go, I think this guy has no brain. <laughs> I don't think I want to listen to a word this guy has to say. And, you know, even though we're in this, we are able to come to some peace about how I speak English. And yes, I don't speak the proper, you know, receives uh south london england or whatever english uh you know british english i speak american english which is which is very raw and brutal at times it sounds comparative compared to the proper proper british english mm-hmm. um it's nevertheless these are indi- often indicative of a certain expectation that people have of you when you're speaking a language
0: You've talked a lot about the, the authors that you, um, that you have in your course. Mm-hmm. Do you have a, a favorite author of migrational fiction?
1: Um, at the moment, I, I, I have this weird thing where I often, when I'm spending a lot of time with an author, they at the moment become my favorite author. And then if I move on from them, then I stop thinking about them. Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm teaching, I mean, at the moment in my class, we're, we're looking at this, um, this uh, Kenyan poet named uh, Shaija Patel. Um, and I assigned her because I read I read that book before I even planned to do this class and I said I've got to, I have to assign this I don't even care if my students don't like it She's my favorite right now um, so that was one is she's someone who, who continually comes up in my life she's a poet a contemporary poet uh, who I think offers everything that you want in the question of migration and is someone who is not a who who from page one to the very end is not concerned with making readers feel comfortable for making readers feel at home for making readers feel like we have a grasp on what it means to be a migrant. So the book, the book is called Mm migratude and it's a book that is meant to perform what she thinks is a combination of the word migrant and attitude. And this text performs a mic migratude in its own way. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's, it's, it's sort of coincidental that I started teaching her this week. So right now she's right in the front of my brain, Mm -hmm. but it is the case that, you know, she's someone I think uh, has only ever written one book. As far as I know uh, is probably going to come up with a new one soon, but is someone I continually return back to because I think she says in her poetry and in her writings and in the way that she conceives of, you know, you know, for example, she has these poems about how, you know, going going to places like the US and where she feels, you know, because she's, she's a migrant, she has to keep quiet and she doesn't want to interrupt people and she doesn't want to speak. And she says, you mistake this for a lack of intellectual confidence, but I'm laughing at you because you think that I'm not smart enough to challenge you, whereas I'm just trying to be polite. And it, it has such a rawness to it. It has such an emotion behind it. In something that you would never ever expect, it's someone who is not interested, has no pretense about whether you think that she is educated, whether you think that she is attempting to assimilate or attempting to give you a story that you can that you can uh, uh, identify with. She doesn't care, and it bleeds through every single word that she writes. I mm. think
0: that sounds pretty amazing. I yeah. think I'll have to check her out. Yeah, I,
1: I would recommend her for for sure.
0: Uh, yeah, we're already at almost an hour, and we still got uh, <laughs> because we we got so many so much interesting stuff to talk about. We still got your uh, your own very personal research project mm-hmm. to talk about. If you would like to talk about that, you I read that you proposed the the concept of kino poetics mm-hmm. to kind of combine. Migration and poetics. Yeah, would you like to explain to Alistair what Kino, what would you mean by Kino poetics?
1: Sure, I, I'd be happy to. And actually, uh, I, I wonder if this is an okay time to say that I have a lecture in a week uh, sure, uh, sure. about this. So <laughs> okay. uh, in a week, I'm giving a lecture about this uh, at the Hofburg uh, as part of the Mobile Mobile Cultures and Societies Research Platform. Uh, they have a series of lectures, and I'm giving the third one in the lecture series. Um, And I give the title of my lecture is Experimental Migrancies, uh, and that is going to detail actually what kinopoetics is meant to be as as what I take as my own theoretical framework for a proper way to look at migrant literature, a proper way to read migrant literature, a way to intervene in what we what people are already saying about migrant literature, but try to add a couple of dimensions that I think are missing. Um, And so that that lecture will be on the 13th of June at 6.15 in the evening. Uh, and that will be, uh, yeah, you go in the same entrance you go when you go to the CC museum and then you just mm-hmm. go up the stairs. <laughs> um, but so basically what kinopoetics is, it's uh, a term that I, that I made up, but it's actually comes from another concept outside of literature. So there's, a, there's this guy named Thomas Nail. He's a philosopher who teaches at the University of Denver and he came out with a series of books so it was a series of really fascinating books a few years ago one called the figure of the migrant and the other is called theory of the border and what both of these books culminate in is attempting to introduce a theoretical framework of what he calls a kinopolitics and what a kinopolitics is essentially amounts to a politics of motion or a movement oriented politics as he calls it he says that basically we have this the more standard way of looking at social and political formation is by saying that you sort of established a state or established a nation and everything outside of that nation is migration or everything outside of that nation is something, you know, you know, that, that migration comes secondary to the nation or that it somehow is a product of the formation of nation states. What, what, What Nail does is he actually reverses that relationship in a very intriguing way. He says, actually, if you look carefully throughout sort of conceptualizing the history of migration and social formation, it's all based on movement, some form of movement, some form of either forcing people out of out of their land so that you can establish a nation, some way of uh, sort of pulling people from the periphery into the center of life through urbanization, for example, so that you can form a certain society. And it's a really radical way of looking at things. It's a really radical way of seeing society that positions movement as the primary mover, so to say, the primary law, the primary governing force of society. And particularly, he says that the migrant, rather than, again, becoming secondary to the citizen or becoming secondary to the nation as a sort of you know, failed citizen who was relegated to a secondary political status and therefore permanently disenfranchised. He said, actually, we should think about the migrant as the primary constitutive figure of social history, that the migrant is what was, what was, what was conceived of and identified and created in order for social formation to emerge. In order for there to be a category of what we are as a nation, we had to decide who was outside of that nation. And that is a, a migratory figure. That is a figure of the migrant, the person who we deem to be the not part of the nation, or the person who we deem as a threat to the nation, or the person who we can who we can justify depriving of property so that we can form a nation. So this is a way of looking at society that all of society, as he says, is based on regimes of social motion. So I was very intrigued by this. I thought this is not only a really unique way of conceptualizing society, but it also repositions the migrant in this kind of affirmative way, kind of says that they actually have their own power and force. It's, it's, it's something that places them at the, you know, the centrality of the migrant as a figure. Um, And As someone who, again, looks at literature and tries to look at literature in a way that, you know, how can we read this in a way that hasn't already been read before? Um, And I thought, like I was saying before, one way of looking at my move from politics to poetics was to say that literature offers us a way to look at this question of kinopolitics in a way that hasn't already been done. So, as far as I know. <laughs> but i googled kino poetics and you nothing will come up except for my own papers so that's a good thing <laughs> um uh, and so uh, i was attempting to supply a dimension to this to this idea of kino politics from the world of literature that says we can look at also not just politics not just the material conditions of social formation but also the poetic side of things the things that w- that relate to our aesthetic experiences, the things that relate to our emotional encounters with texts, relate to how we negotiate political regimes through language and how we interpret them through language. So kinopoetics is in a sense, the way I, the short short answer to how Mm -hmm. do I say that is, kinopoetics is a way of extending politics into poetics, but you still see politics and poetics as two mutually reinforcing uh, systems of
0: meaning. Mm -hmm. When you take a poem and start analyzing that po- um, poem, what do, you, what do you look out for? And how do you tie that in with Akinopoetics?
1: Yeah, well, it, tend, it, it tends to be different every time. Because one of the things that I'm attempting to work out, and I haven't quite uh, arrived there yet in my dissertation, uh, is whether there are different forms or different types of Akinopoetics. Mm-hmm. Um, but typically, what I'm concerned about is the what is the act, the migrant's figure? What what is the migrant's relationship to their own movement in society, in the society that they're coming from, the society that they're reacting to, the society that has made them move? Are they someone who you know is you know am I reading am I reading the story of a refugee who feels? you know, that they've been deprived of their home, that they've been forced out of their home, they've been pushed out in a certain way, then I would read it in a way that asks, you know, what were what were those conditions that forced them into motion? And then how does that change the entire relationship to the story in the text? But then how do we read this in a way that the, that the migrant becomes the primary mover and that the society decided that this is you know, um, this is someone who, you know, again, uh, plays a particular role in our own self conceptions So that's one way of thinking about it. The other is that, you know, one thing I should say is that, um, I also look at things from, again, you know, what is actually happening to them emotionally, uh, what is happening to them at, what are their sensations when they're moving, when they're being, when they're being forced out, you know, what, what is actually happening to their bodies at this particular moment, what is happening to their skin, their physical way of conceiving of space and how are they moving through space? Those tend to be a lot of the concerns I have as well, because I actually think that's something that is under theorized and under considered. Mm -hmm. Um, And what is, what is, and then how do we get drawn into a relationship with the sensations that they have? You know, when you, when you are an immigrant and you move to a new country and you have to sit for hours and hours at a visa office while you someone behind a window gets to decide whether you get to stay or not, mm-hmm. what is what does that feeling, what is that like for your body? I mean, I can tell you I've done it, but it's also, you know, the way that other authors think about this, you know, how sometimes how humiliating it can feel and how strange it can feel and how you can feel. You feel like you have to, you're going for a job interview mm-hmm. or something, or you feel like you know the person is looking at you with suspicion just because you have a different skin color or a different different complexion. What does that do to you then? When you realize that someone is looking at you this way, what, how do you, how does it feel? At the bodily level, when this is happening to you, so I, I I try to position all of these things, movement in a macro level and at a micro level. So how do we move literally with our hands and our arms, and how do we conceive of our relationship to space? And what does that mean if you're a migrant? How do you how do you step through boundaries? How do you step through a new city space that you're not used to? You know, getting onto public transit that you're not used to, for example. What is all of this? How do we, how do we reposition all of those movements as a central focal
0: point mm-hmm. i like the the effective part of that yeah uh, what it does yeah. to people and how they how they feel about it and w- what it may make the reader feel when they read it yeah, yeah. i found that very interesting uh, uh something that maybe isn't isn't uh, touched upon often enough
1: it's not touched upon often enough. And I mean, cause the, there is a, there is a limitation to this. Uh, and it's a limitation limitation I'm having to deal with because what you end up doing is, are you saying, you know, am I saying that the only interpretation is, you know, how it, how it affects the individual reader? Well, who's to say that my experience of this is the same as the next reader. I mean, as we just talked about, yeah. every reading should be a new re-performed reading. Um, and that's that's a, there's a limitation to that to say well you know we're drawn into a relation and then we feel something that the, that the character feels or we're supposed to feel something that the character feels you kind of say well who says right mm-hmm. who says that everyone is supposed to feel this so this is something i'm i'm more or less i'm having to deal with as a as um as a limitation in my own in my own concept because you know of course if i say well You know, when I imagine a character moving, I also feel myself moving with them. And then a next reader will say, I don't feel that at all. Then, well, there goes my whole project as a theoretical framework. (laughs) Um, But it is supposed to be something about, you know, again, one thing that makes, I think, makes readers, um, or maybe not readers, but actually scholars and students very uncomfortable, is when you turn to people and you and you actually want to ask them how it made them feel. And you, you kind of say, well, my emotions don't really matter. They, why, why would you ask me that? But I think we've learned in politics recently that one thing is that is very easily the case is that emotions actually do matter and that emotions do play a big role in shaping our perceptions of things and they do play a big role in shaping who we deem to be acceptable in our society and who we deem to be who belongs and who doesn't and so on so actually you know I always say to people well they say well it's just emotions and I say well emotions aren't nothing they your emotions decide whether you're gonna go and vote they decide whether you are going to have hostility against someone speaking a foreign language on the bus next to you mm-hmm. so you know we could we could sit here and say all day well that's just subjective that's just emotions but what 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 are we doing in politics if not acting with our emotions? So there's a big there's a big discussion about this, but but that's one of the things that people people hesitate about because it seems like I'm just saying, well, you know, how does it affect me individually as a reader, and then I extrapolate from there and say this is how everyone reads it.
2: Mm-hmm. How did you get the opportunity to do that lecture at the Hofburg, actually?
1: Yeah, that's a a, <laughs> a good question. I um. So I'm an associated member of the of the Mobile Cultures and Societies platform. It's an it's an interdisciplinary platform where a lot of people think about questions of mobility and movement in mm-hmm. society. Not always about uh, migration as such, but you know how different, for example, forms of media move throughout throughout the world and throughout society. How different uh, ways of experiencing media and film and all kinds of things. Uh, some people write about dance and things like this, different different ways of interpreting this idea of mobility. And I'm one of their associated members. And this year, <laughs> they were looking for someone to give the last lecture. So I said, <laughs> I, as, um, you know, I was, I was thinking that one way that Uh, I decided was going to incentivize me to get some good writing done was, well, how about I volunteer to give one of the last lectures and I've never, I've never given a public lecture before. I've never given Mm -hmm. a big, I've never had to give a big hour long lecture uh, in front of people before. I mean, I've done conferences where you have to speak for like 15 minutes or something like this, but to do, you know, a big lecture where I'm under pressure to give, you know, a detailed detailed overview of what I do and what I work on, I thought this was this would be a, an opportunity for me to get some research and writing done. And uh, yeah, I just thought it was something I'd never had a chance to do before, and they were looking for people to give a lecture, so I volunteered. <laughs> Perfect.
2: And um, it happened to be in Vienna?
1: Like, it ha- well, it was it was part of the Mobile Cultures platform, which is based in Vienna. Ah, so I this see. platform is actually, it's headed up by one of the professors in the English department, Professor Alexandra Ganser. She's the That's head it. of the Mobile Cultures uh, research platform she sort of founded it and uh, but it it's it extends to people outside of literature and outside of cultural studies it's 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 a very interdisciplinary platform uh, and she's a friend of mine so I, I joined the platform about a year ago and uh, and uh, so it's uh, it was something that uh, I I knew what they were going for when they wanted this this lecture series and I knew the other people who were presenting and I and I wanted to I I never. I don't get a lot of chances to to uh, participate in other things that they do. So this was my chance to nice. offer nice. something.
0: Mm-hmm. How are your preparations
1: going? <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to talk about it. No, um, actually, no. Okay, they're going okay. Um, I the the hardest part is coming up with an introduction. Mm-hmm. I think uh, a compelling introduction because you know no one wants to hear like, well, in the beginning was the word and the word was man. And here's what literature is. And here's what migration is. And there's a, da, 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 da. you know, so you have to kind of deal with the fact that you have to keep people awake and you have to keep people interested. And you know, what is, what are the stakes of what you're doing? Mm-hmm. And for me, the writing, the introduction was took the longest, longest, and we'll, we'll see how that turns out. I don't know, but I think that's the, i've now that i've gotten past there i've i've moved on from the introduction i should have it done okay. I, sh- I hope to have it done in time
0: okay <laughs> good
1: otherwise i'll just you know make it up as i go <laughs>
0: <laughs> since you came up with your own pro- uh, concept mm-hmm. is i mean on the one hand it's kind of uh, the thing that you do when you do a dissertation i suppose yeah. you come up with your own stuff uh, but also i was wondering maybe uh when if there are other other concepts out there, uh, what are the flaws of those concepts and why are you coming up with your own new one?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I think that I have felt I mean, yeah, I. I it was simply one is that as far as I know, this is the only one that attempts to reposition the relationship to migration as something that is primary and, uh, and as uh, the centrality of migration. Um, on the other hand, um, there are other sort of, there are other sort of concepts that I've, that I've built on before. Um, so for example, there's a, there's, um, concepts like, uh, uh, Gilles Deleuze and Felix Guattari have this idea of minor literature um, which they did, which is, has a similar, has a similar flavor to the idea of kinopoetics because they're talking about experimentations with language. They're talking about, you know, inventing, uh, a subject and inventing the central figure of someone who is marginalized within society. So they don't just talk about the migrant, but they're talking about, you know, uh, ethnic minorities and so on, um, a couple of limitations to that concept to me seem to be one. I hate the term minor literature. I think it's a really monstrous word to use. Um, It's one of those things that I actually just taught the idea of minor literatures last week. And I thought I gave this, you know, my detailed explanation about, you know, I think when people hear the word minor, it's a very misunderstood term and that, you know, we could complicate it a little bit based on, but at the end of the day, you just kind of wish they had picked a different word Mm
0: -hmm. and you wish they hadn't used it it immediately reminds me of uh, jurisdiction court stuff yeah because I don't know, like it's underage drinking or when right. you're a minor you're you know, a minor you're, what are, you know oh.
1: yeah there are no minors allowed here yeah. right exactly and 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 to me it's it's I can't hear the term minor without someone saying, oh, so it's, you know, it's I just got a minor scratch. Don't worry, it's no big deal. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. insignificant. In comparison, it's not a big deal. I said, who would say, who would want to celebrate mm-hmm. this about literature and say it's mm-hmm. not a big deal? Are you kidding? It's not a big deal. You know, mm-hmm. so um, you kind of just wish they had picked a different word. So I think that's one, you know, wh- one way that I think, yeah, kinopoetics, I try to, I try to pick something that has a kind of, Flavor that is uh, doesn't ha- doesn't have these unfortunate connotations.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, I also think you know that uh, what I'm attempting to do is. I mean, other people have talked about you know, for example, uh, Jahan Ramazani has a book called the "Transnational Poetics." Um, transnational poetics is important, but it's it's severely limited as well because transnational poetics only, to me, talks about how you you work with language that is simply exposed to other national contexts. And that's one dimension of what migrant literature does, but it doesn't cover the entirety of it. Mm -hmm. It doesn't do enough for me to culminate in a fully fledged poetics of migration. It's only certain context of migration or certain, and it actually doesn't even have to be migration. I mean, you you can say, you can form a transnational poetics even if you stay in one place, you just have been exposed to different national identities in one place. So I find those concepts also a little bit limited. And I thought for me, there's, as as far as I know, there's no other, I keep having to say that because I haven't read everything under the sun, but I do know that at least as far as I know, bringing in this idea of poetics, which I, I deem to be rather important to me, that also tries to cover and accommodate the full complexity of migration without making it reductive and saying migration is just this one thing. Has to be done through a kinopoetics. It has to be done by looking at movement, but different forms of movement, different forces, different institutional forces, different ways of conceiving of it, and the kind of internal diversities of it that I think other concepts don't have. Mm-hmm. But I'm a young scholar, so I shouldn't be this confident about my own about okay. the about the strength of my own of my own concept. But I uh, mean,
0: isn't this why they talk about some? Uh, long dead scholar uh, scholars like uh, the the early I don't know. that's the early Wittgenstein and yeah. the late Wittgenstein. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah,
1: that's right. That's right. Yeah. Well, you know, and then and then, yeah. You know, so by the time by the time a, by the time if ever a monograph actually comes out, I can say, well, that was you know early that population. was my dissertation. I I can I can disown my dissertation and it'll <laughs> it'll be fine. I've I've revised it now and now that's that's a previous part of me and and yeah. No, I mean, so you know, if if ever if ever I if ever I I in my in my wildest dreams, people say, well. Have you ever read? Have you read Kevin Potter? And they say, "Well, I like the early stuff, but not the late stuff." You know? <laughs> when he was in that keynote, or they say, "Well, I don't like the early stuff." When he's in that kinopoetics poetics kick, I, I don't know about that. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, so, whatever thing I do in the future, hopefully that sets my legacy, not this.
0: <laughs> okay. if, it, if it turns out to be bad, <laughs> if if, if yeah, yeah yeah, I'm going to ask you now about about whether you have uh, any presence on the internet. I know you have a Twitter, which is a very good Twitter. Yeah. Thank
1: you. (laughs) Uh, that, that exists as my only, my only presence online. Uh Um, I don't have an Instagram because I don't take enough pictures Mm -hmm. of anything. And I felt like that was the only reason I would have an Instagram, but I have a Twitter. Uh, I think the handle is at Kevin M Potter. Um, and otherwise I have You can find YouTube videos of me giving other lectures that I've given in the past, but please don't watch them. They're embarrassing. (laughs) So otherwise, uh, I I exist in, in, I'm also on Facebook. Yeah. So people can find me on Facebook
0: as well. And you have like uh, academia pages? I have an academia
1: page. Yeah. That's that's sort of my depository for a lot of my papers uh, that I've written or proposals that I'm working on, uh, papers that I've published. Those also exist on my academia page. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. How about you, Charlotte?
2: Same. Same Same as as, as as yesterday. (laughs) yesterday. But people won't hear what we talked about yesterday before they hear this. True, true. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's weird with
0: time on podcasts.
2: Yeah,
1: weird time disjunctions.
2: (laughs) But so, yeah, in like a couple of weeks from now when this episode, you know, like the episode from yesterday comes out they will get their
0: answer to your question. Yes, yes, uh, whenever that will be. How
1: tantalizing that was. <laughs> I have to wait now.
0: <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Twitter, as always, at Leo Engelmeyer. Uh, this was episode 31 of the Universe Podcast. If you enjoyed it and would like to hear more of us, make sure to subscribe to the Universe Podcast wherever you're listening to it. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review to tell us what you think and help other people find the podcast. And tell all your friends about it. Comments? Questions? You can reach us on Twitter. We're at poduniverse. Instagram, where we are at Writing on Facebook. Or on our email address podcast at universe.com org. This podcast was edited and hosted by Leonhard Engelmeyer. The co-host was Charlotte Zertz. Our guest on this episode was Kevin Potter. I hope you visit this planet in the universe again. In the meantime, stay safe in space. Thanks for listening.